Well, good morning. Uh, great to be with you this morning. My name is Bryce Hales. I'm the pastor here at Resurrection OC. And I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to uh, the book of Hebrews. And we're looking at the, uh, the end of Hebrews chapter 4, the beginning of Hebrews 5 this morning as we continue our series, uh, Is Jesus Enough? This morning we are going to be, uh, kind of this middle section of the book of Hebrews is, is, is all about what does it mean that in Jesus we have a great high priest. And uh, so we're going to look at that this morning. So let me invite you to stand with me if you are willing and able as we uh, give our attention to God's word. We stand out of, uh, to show deference to God and his word. Hebrews 4. Uh, starting at verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He could deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. No one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And he says also in another place, You are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears, to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. This is God's word. It is completely true. And it's given to you because he loves you. Would you pray with me? Let's pray together. God, we come to you now. And God, we, uh, we ask for your help. God, we, uh, we need your help because we uh, grapple with sickness. We wrestle with disease. God, we are um, struck by... Um, just the difficulty of life in this world. Uh, Many of us have faced tragedy this week. Many of us uh, face frustration in our work and our relationships. And so we come to you because you have the words of life. And we pray that you would speak life into our being this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated, please. This week I heard a story about a guy who discovered a treasure that he already owned. 
There's a guy named Bob. He lived in Downey, California. And uh, Bob bought an old beat-up Harley-Davidson motorcycle at a garage sale for $35. And having bought this motorcycle and driven it around for a couple weeks, it was in pretty bad shape. And after uh, thinking about it and then procrastinating for a few more weeks, Bob finally called up uh, the company, Harley-Davidson, on the phone to find out about some replacement parts. And um, he talked to the person on the phone. The person on the phone asked him for the serial number of his bike. And when he gave it to him, the guy said, let me put you on hold for a minute. And he was on hold for a couple minutes. And um, then he came back on the line with a uh, kind of a more serious tone in his voice and said, "Uh, sir, I'm going to have to get back to you. I'm going to have to call you back. But can you give me your exact name and phone number and address first? And so uh, Bob gave it to him. And a few days later, the, bo- the phone rang, and it was somebody else from Harley-Davidson. And he asked Bob if Bob would uh, take the seat off of his Harley and tell him if there was anything written underneath it. And when Bob did that, he saw two words written on the bottom of uh, the seat. Now, if you want to know what those two words are, you're going to have to stick with me until the end of the sermon. <laughs> Why do you do that? Just because I can. But here's what happened when Bob told the man those two words. The man immediately said, my boss has authorized me to buy that motorcycle from you for $300,000. Do we have a deal? Tell me right now, please. And Bob said, I think I'm going to think about this for a minute. The next day, he got a phone call from Jay Leno, who bought the motorcycle for a half million dollars. Well, okay, so you're going to have to find out, you know, stick with me to find out what exactly was going on there. But what I want you to see right now is this. Nothing changed about the condition of that motorcycle from the time Bob bought it for $35 to the time that he sold it a few weeks later for half a million dollars. Nothing about the condition of it changed at all. The only thing that changed was that Bob paid closer attention to something that was happening on that motorcycle. It was exactly the same, but its value increased exponentially when he paid much closer attention to what he already had. And this morning, as we look at this passage from Hebrews 4 and 5, what I want to encourage you to do is look much more closely at what you already have, because what Hebrews is telling us is this, you don't need more than Jesus, You just need more of him. You don't need more than Jesus. You just need more of him. If you're a Christian, you already have him. And yet this passage is going to help us appreciate more fully and deeply what we have in him. To really understand, I think, how important this passage is, we've got to try to understand what it would have been like for the original audience, uh, the, the people that the book of Hebrews was addressed to in the first place. And I I understand that this is a little bit challenging, but hang with me for like two minutes as I try to give you some background. I've said this over and over again, that the original audience of Hebrews uh, were people who uh, had a background in Judaism and had put their trust in Jesus, and they're now tempted to go back into Judaism. And um, we we have to understand sort of what a, what a shock that would have been to their identity, to the way that they had understood themselves. Um, I mean, think about the, the customs and the practices of Judaism. You have the law, you have the Sabbath, this weekly reminder. 
of, of God's goodness to you. Uh, you have the sacrifices, the temple, the festivals every year. And they've now become Christians where they're now meeting in like background, back rooms uh, and in underground worship spaces. And all of that, uh, that the, the, those routines and those practices that sh- had shaped their identity are now gone. And life is hard, and maybe uh, they're being marginalized and under persecution. They're tempted uh, to give up and go back to G- uh, go back to Judaism. It'd be a little bit like this. Imagine if you suddenly no longer had sort of the the fall winter sequence of Halloween and Thanksgiving and Christmas. Um, you know, having grown up with those things your whole life, and they kind of don't they just like shape like the fall and into the winter for us. And all of a sudden they're gone. And your world is now turned upside down and you're tempted to go back to something that feels safe. That's what Hebrews is talking about. And the author of Hebrews is encouraging the original readers and he's encouraging us to take another look at what we already have, to see the value and the worth of Jesus Because what you need is not more than him. What you need is simply more of him. And so in this passage, it's hard to understand. I get that. But uh, the original readers, they would have been asking questions about who, who, who is this Jesus anyway? And why does he have this claim to, like, why is he making this claim to be the Messiah? And how can he claim to be a priest they're asking questions like that. We would never, they, we would never ask these questions, right? But to understand what's going on in this passage. You have to understand this is what they're asking. Why does he get to claim to be the Messiah himself? And um, why does he claim to be a priest when he is not a Levite? He is not descended from Aaron. And so, what what the author is doing in this passage is he is answering those objections by quoting Psalm ten, uh, one ten rather, that says that God made Jesus the Messiah. And he's referencing this mysterious figure that only appears once in the Old Testament named Melchizedek, who uh, is kind of the central path of figure in the next couple chapters of Hebrews. We're going to talk more about him in, coming, in the coming weeks. But he was a priest and he was a king, but he's a mysterious figure and we don't really know exactly who he is. And the author is saying Jesus is a king or is a priest, not in the line of Aaron, but in the line of Melchizedek. And so what I want you to see is this. It would be easy to get lost in the details and kind of miss the main point. But when your identity as a Christian is shaken and you're tempted to go back to something that feels safe, what you need is not more than Jesus. You simply need to take another look at what you already have and discover that there are greater riches, there is more value in Jesus than you had previously acknowledged He is there whether you acknowledge him, whether you realize it or not. But we will never truly appreciate his value until we see what this passage makes clear to us. And that is simply this, that Jesus saves us as a man. Okay, you will never fully appreciate the grace of God until you appreciate that Jesus saved you as a man. That he is fully God, yes, and yet he is fully human. So to understand um, his grace, we've got to understand what it cost him to save us. So um, three things in this passage, 
And um, I don't know why it strikes me, but the, this passage is completely backwards. <laughs> uh, he, he begins with the application, and every good sermon ends with the application. So I'm going to look at this passage backwards today. So the first thing at the end of the passage in chapter 5, verses 7 through 10, that you need to see is the humanity of Jesus. The humanity of Jesus. Look at, listen to these words. Verses 7 through 10. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplication with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Now listen to this. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. If you are a Christian, those are some of the weirdest verses in the New Testament. Um, I know that there's a lot of, in our culture, in our world, there's a lot of debate about was Jesus God. If you're a Christian, uh, that is settled. The Bible teaches and Christians believe that Jesus is fully God. But what these verses are saying um, is not simply that um, he was fully God, but that he is fully man. He is fully human. They talk about not just that Jesus suffered, but it says that he learned obedience, uh, that he was made perfect. Uh, so if Jesus is God, why does he need to learn something? Or why does he need to be made perfect? Um, was he not already perfect? Did he not know everything if he is, if he is divine? Um, yes, Jesus is fully God. But it can be hard for us to fully embrace his humanity. And I think that there, there's a temptation for uh, those of us, especially if you've been a Christian for a long time, to kind of have this view that, like, Jesus is God, and he kind of pretended to be a man. <laughs> um, that he was God, and yes, he suffered, but he kind of always had something in his back pocket that he could pull out at any moment. It was like he just sort of hovered like a centimeter above earth and he never, it seemed like he suffered, but it never was really that bad because he was God and he could just snap his fingers um, <clears throat> and bust out of it at any moment. And what Hebrews makes clear is that he was in every respect human. He was a man. Uh, Philippians 2 says that though Jesus was equal with God, he didn't cling to his divinity. He didn't grasp onto it. He didn't, he didn't kind of wear it uh, like a shield. <coughs> Excuse me. Another way to think of it is like this. Um, Jesus never cheated. Cheated, you know, in quotes. He, uh, he never in his life as a man on earth made uh, use of the divine resources that were available to him. He never cheated. This week I was uh, um, coaching, was coaching one of our sons, one of my son's soccer teams, and at the end of practice we were scrimmaging and me and one of my assistant coaches get in there and we decide we're going we're gonna to play soccer with the kids. And you, you know you have to kind of like keep it at their level, right? But it is so hard to not just like wail on those kids every once in a while, right? Just because I can, right? Because when I play with adults who are better than me, I'm the worst, you know, player on the field. It's so frustrating. But when I play against kids, I can cheat <laughs> by making uh, use of my adult soccer resources. And what this is saying is that Jesus never made use of those resources. 
when Jesus was arrested and Peter pulls out his sword and cuts off the ear of somebody who's there to arrest him. Jesus says, Peter, just put your sword away. Uh, Jesus says, Peter, don't you know that if I wanted to, I could snap my fingers and more than 1,200 angels would rush to my defense? He had those uh, divine resources available to him, but he never made use of them. As he was tempted by Satan in the wilderness, when Satan says, um, you know, he's fasting for 40 days and Satan says, you must be hungry. Why don't you turn these stones into loaves of bread and just eat something? He doesn't cheat. He doesn't, he doesn't use his divinity to serve himself. In the Garden of Gethsemane, as he's going to the cross, he prays to God the Father, isn't there another way but not my will, but your will be done. He doesn't rely on his divine prerogative to get his will. On the cross, as the passers-by mock him and say, if you really are the Christ, save yourself, he can, but he doesn't. Because in his humanity, he never cheated, he never relied on his divinity. Verse 8 and 9 are saying, Though he was a son, he learned obedience. He was made perfect. Not in the sense that he lacked knowledge or he was imperfect. But in order to sympathize with us, he had to experience everything that we experience. In chapter 4, it says he was like us in every way, but without sin. Imagine a business owner, a very successful business owner, and he's getting uh, extensive holdings and but but the business owner is advancing in age and he's gonna pass his business on to his son or his heir not I don't know not to be too gender stereotyped about these things but and so the son comes to work but he doesn't come directly to the executive suite uh, he begins uh, working on the factory floor because he needs to Uh, experience what these craftsmen who produce the product that the company sells, uh, the the, the incredible skill that these craftsmen have. And then from there, he moves on to sales because he needs to know what it's like for his sales force to experience the hopes and despairs of living on commission. And then he goes into the accounting department because he needs to come to terms with these complex numbers and how they point to the profit or losses of a company. And it's only as he starts at the bottom and works his way up that two things happen, that, 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 the, that this new business owner would ever actually earn the respect of his employees because he started at the bottom and experienced everything that they did. It's only as he starts at the bottom that they, he would earn their respect, but it's really only then that he would actually understand and sympathize with them and therefore be able to run the company effectively. Now consider the sacrifice that Jesus made. For all eternity, Jesus is God, has been God, was God, continues to be God. For all eternity, he has dwelt in unapproachable light. He is the radiance of the glory of God. And at a certain point in history, he took on our humanity. He took on a 
a body. He took on the, uh, the, not just a body, the essence of our humanity, our weakness, our human frailty, taking on physical limitations, not availing himself of his divinity. Jesus took on and continues to this day to have a body. He is still fully human. Why did he do that? He did that for you in order to understand you, in order to sympathize with you. Now, why was that necessary? Well, the second thing that we've got to see, and and this is so crucial, he had to be like us in every way. He had to be fully human in order for the second thing to be true. Uh, The second thing that we see in this passage in the middle, uh, the first part of of chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, is that Jesus is our priest or our advocate. Uh, Verse 1 Chapter 5 says, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. Okay, what it's describing there is the, with the essence of what it means to be a priest. A priest is a go-between. He says the, the high priest acts uh, before God, what, what does it say, um, on behalf of men in relation to God. So a priest represents God to human beings and represents human beings to God. Um, Because Jesus is fully human, because he is both God and man, he is the perfect, ultimate high priest. And the Levitical system in the Old Testament, you had priests and high priests, but this says that Jesus is the great high priest or the mega high priest. He's better than even the high priest. Uh, because he is the one who is able, uh, he is at home on both sides of, of the divide. If I can put it like that way. He is at home on the human side and he is at home on the side of divinity because he is fully God and fully man. Um, we, I don't think, tend to have much appreciation for the word priest in our culture. Uh, we probably view it as either an archaic word, uh, maybe in a, in a kind of a neutral sense, or, or maybe it has negative connotations for us. Uh, But what a priest does is what's described there. A priest is a go-between. A priest represents us to God and represents God to us. And so um, maybe a more helpful way to think about it is actually instead of the word priest is to think of Jesus as our advocate uh, or as our lawyer. One thing that Ashley and I discovered when we moved to Scotland many years ago, we only pretty much have one we call lawyers or attorneys like... um, like they're all the same, but uh, in the UK there are d- many different words for lawyer: barrister, solicitor, um, an advocate, and they all have different functions. And an advocate is um, is a lawyer who represents you at trial. Uh, many years ago, Ashley and I were renting a house, and our landlord was a nightmare. And uh, after three months, we we're like, we have to get out of this place. And uh, we moved out of the the house we'd been renting, and uh, she totally um, ripped us off. She uh, she kept our deposit. Uh, Amazingly, in the three months we lived there, we managed to do exactly the amount of damage to the house as our deposit was. What a coincidence, right? And so we were talking, we just happened to have a friend uh, from church who was an assistant district attorney for uh, the county. And as we were talking to him, he said, you know, you have a case here. And so he was our advocate. He was our representative. 
when we took our former landlord to small claims court. Um, think about what happens when you go to small claims court. Uh, I know nothing about the world of the courts. And to walk in there, I remember walking in there the night that we were going to court, going, what's going to happen? We're talking to ourselves, each other, going, Are, do we have to say anything? I have no idea what's going to happen. But we had an advocate who understood the world of the court, but he also understood us, too. And so we went into the courtroom, and he just asked me a series of questions and very simply walked through what happened. He represented us to the court and the court to us. And the judge cited in our favor, and she still has not paid to this day. <laughs> if you go to court and your lawyer looks foolish, then you look foolish. And if you go to court and you have an advocate who is wise, then you look wise. Jesus is our great high priest because he is both fully God and fully, uh, fully man. He is at home on both sides of the divide. And that is why it is such a tragedy whenever I hear somebody say something like, well, it just seems to me that if God was a God of love, that God would never fill in the blank. Because we don't have to guess about what God is like, or we don't have to talk about God like we are shouting across a divide into an unknown darkness because we have one who has come from the other side and he's come to be with us to make God known to us. We have an advocate in Jesus. You know, most um, religions picture God as being kind of far off, and he is holy, and he is powerful, but he is austere, and he is removed, and he would never soil himself by getting in the muck of our humanity. You know, most traditional religions conceive of God in that way. Uh, the other way that you could conceive of God, um, if you think about like the, the, uh, the, you know, okay, so that way is to conceive of God as, you know, powerful but distant, right? The other way to conceive of God, if you think about like the Greek or Roman pantheon, which I don't think anybody ever really took seriously, but, but they pictured the gods as like way too much like us, right? They're basically like, they're petty, they're jealous, but they're really powerful, um, who would conceive of a God who is, we, let me say it like this, we, we could conceive of, of a God who is near but can't affect change, or we could imagine a God who is powerful but distant, but in Jesus we have a God who is fully at home on both sides. Uh, he is the radiance of the glory of God in a form that we can relate to. He has enough power in his pinky to call worlds into existence. And yet he holds us in the palm of his hands. That is the beauty of who Jesus is. Jesus is, uh, is our great, our mega high priest. Because he is God who has become a man. Okay, I'm about to break a rule and mention Christmas before Thanksgiving. And I, we actually, I actually already, uh, I think, condemned somebody for doing this this morning. But I'm going to do it anyway. Because this is what Christmas is all about. Um, you know, at, at Advent, we think about Emmanuel, God with us. What does that mean? It, God with us does not mean God near us. It means God is with us. Like, I'm with you. He, he, he sympathizes with us. He is in solidarity with us. He is, he, he is one of us. He understands us. 
He is advocating for us. Okay, so this is the treasure of who Jesus is. And, and the, the incredible thing about this, if you think back to kind of the you know, opening motorcycle illustration, Jesus is your great high priest, whether you are aware of that or not, if you have put your trust in him. But having now taken a moment to more fully appreciate what he is and who he did, who he is and what he does for you, does it not cause you to value him more deeply? You are saved by a man, by the humanity of Jesus, who earned your salvation. Okay, so what? What should we then do? Well, let's then look at... um, where this passage begins in chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. It says, since we have a great high priest, okay, what, what, what does that mean? It says, now because uh, now that we can appreciate the treasure that we have in Jesus, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, um, that phrase, passed through the heavens, is, is talking about the, the Jewish people conceived of heaven as having like different levels or layers there's a place where the Apostle Paul talks about being caught up into the third heaven. And what it's saying is that Jesus, the man, having ascended you know, out of the earth, passed through the levels or layers of heaven and walked right in, into the inner sanctum, into the throne room of God, where in his body he sat down at the right hand of God the Father. Jesus the man, your advocate, ascended and walked into the throne room of God. Therefore, we should do two things, he says. We should hold fast our confession, and we should approach the throne of grace with confidence. So, that's what we should do. So, two things. We should hold fast. You have to see that this is this theme that he he keeps coming up again over and over again in in Hebrews. Um, In chapter 2... The author said it like, he's used different words, but he said the same thing over and over again. In chapter 2, he says, do not drift away. Uh, do not drift away from Jesus. In chapter, elsewhere in chapter 2, he says, we must pay much closer attention to the things that we have heard. In chapter 3 and 4, he warns us not to harden our hearts against God. And here he says, because you have an advocate in the throne room of heaven, hold fast to your confession. Hold on to him. Do not give up on Jesus. Uh, I have a good friend who has a a tattoo that says grip fast, hold fast. And uh, the reason he has his tattoo is because uh, he's a member of the Leslie uh, clan uh, from Scotland. And he told me the story, I looked this up on Wikipedia this week to verify, the Scottish Leslie clan, in the 11th century, they rescued the queen. And having rescued the queen from danger, uh, she was on the back of one of the clansmen's horses as they passed through a dangerous river. And he turned back to the queen and told her to grip fast. Uh, Because that's what you tell the queen, apparently, if you're crossing a dangerous river. Hold on tight because things are going to get bumpy. Um, Hold fast. What does that look like for us? You know, we might say, I believe in Jesus, but how do I really hold fast? Well, think again about the original readers. 
Maybe like them, you're in a place where it feels like your world has been turned upside down. And you're just looking for a place to feel safe. Uh, What do you look to in moments of weakness, in moments of boredom, in moments of stress? Where do you go to find safety? Um, What are you holding on to? I mean, most of us, we just pull out our phones if, <laughs> if we're bored for half a second, right? Like my Linus blanket, and we pull up my, like, I'm going to scroll through my devices just to, you understand. Uh, <laughs> for some of us, it's our, you know, it's our bank account. Uh, it's, our, it's our stock portfolio. It's our 401k. You know, as long as that's safe, everything is okay. For some of us, it's our political views. I noticed this last week, um, it was so random, but maybe this is some of you. There are, there are some people for whom everything is an opportunity to kind of make a political comment on something. Uh, like Halloween costumes garner you know, comments to throw the other side under the bus. Um, I know there's an election this week. I'm not telling you not to vote. I'm not saying that at all. Um, There's nothing wrong with money. There's nothing wrong with having a phone. The problem is that they are things that we hold fast to. And we live in a place that is designed to make life as comfortable for us as possible. And so I believe that the call for us to hold fast might actually be a call to let go because you cannot hold fast to Jesus while you are holding fast to your money or your politics or whatever else it is. You cannot hold fast to Jesus while holding fast to your bank account. Um, You can make money, of course, right? We all make money. We all have political views. We all have phones. We all have preferences. I don't care, but we cannot hold on to them for dear life while holding on to Jesus at the same time. And that's why we have to give generously because we have to break the power that money has over us. God doesn't need our money, but he encourages us to give because we have to let go of our money in order to hold on to Jesus. That's why you need to be generous with your time to disabuse yourself of the notion that you are in control of your own life because you're not. And God knows it, but you don't. (laughs) And when you give away your time, you are showing that you can hold on to Jesus instead. I have to be honest, I have found that I do not do a very good job of, I cannot do this on my own. And that's why we need community. I need you in my life. Um, This is why I mean, I don't do this well on my, on my own, and that's why I have spent time over the last several years meeting regularly with a counselor, because I can't let go of the things that have a hold on my heart. And this past week, as I was talking to my counselor, and we were talking about, um, <laughs> I was talking about having just lost it in an argument with my wife. Not that I lost the argument, which is a regular occurrence, but that I lost it on my wife. And he said, I want you to think for a second about what it felt like in that moment before you let go. 
And he said, you don't need to describe it in words. Just think about where you felt it in your body. And I thought, I can't feel that. And he said, now what I want you to try to do is remember that. And the next time you feel that way, ask yourself, why do I feel trapped? I can't do this on my own. And it is hard work to slow down, to get to the point where we feel ourselves in the moment going, I'm tempted to hold on to this. I'm going to make a comment about somebody else's politics that will totally just devalue them as a person. Whatever it is, we cannot do this on our own. We have to hold loosely to the things in our lives in order to hold fast to Jesus. We have to take these repeated warnings in the book of Hebrews seriously. Don't harden your heart. Don't drift. Pay much closer attention. Hold fast. The author would not be saying the same thing over and over again if it wasn't so dangerous. And what I think this looks like for us, so I think the warning is this, that we're not going to... Uh, it's very rare for somebody who is a committed follower of Jesus to simply wake up one morning and say, I just woke up and now I'm an atheist. Right? To completely 180 about face and just reject Jesus. But what it looks like is slow decisions over time. And so the author of Hebrews is saying, day by day, moment by moment, constantly evaluate yourself. Look at where you are. You need the input of your friends in your family and those who love you to hold on to Jesus and to hold everything else loosely. That's the first thing we should do, hold fast to Jesus. But the other thing he says in uh, chapter 4, verse 16, is this, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Your advocate is seated in the position of ultimate power and honor. He has the ear of God himself because he is God himself. And so if there is anything that you need, you can ask him for it. Because he is not stingy. He loves you. He knows what you need. He provides for you. He loves you so you can approach him and ask for help. Okay, so back to Downey, California, where a guy named Bob gets a phone call from Harley Davidson and says, I will buy that motorcycle from you. Before he said that, he said, could, Bob, could you get a screwdriver and take the seat off of your motorcycle? And Bob did that, and he turned the seat over and engraved on the bottom of the seat were the words, the king. Okay, and the serial number and the engraving confirmed that Bob bought this piece of junk motorcycle for $35 that had been the property of Elvis Presley. And so he sold it for half a million dollars. But the thing that I love about that story is this, nothing changed about the condition of that motorcycle to transform it from a functional piece of junk into a glorious ruin. The only thing that changed about it was the name that was stamped upon it. And if you're a Christian, that is what's true of you. The only thing that is significant and valuable about you is that there is a name that has been stamped upon you. 
in our baptism, Jesus, uh, well, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, puts his name upon us. And that is why you are valuable. You will never fully appreciate the lavish grace of God until you realize what God did in order to make that a reality in your life. That Jesus, who possessed the riches of divinity, was willing to give it up in order to become a man, in order to live a perfect life, in order to die the death that you deserved, in order to be raised again from the dead, in order to ascend to heaven and pass through the heavens into the inner sanctum, the throne room of God, where he still has a body, and he prays for you. And that's the value of what Jesus has done for you. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you that you were willing to give up so much in order to be with us, to make yourself known to us. Thank you for what you subjected yourself to, taking on the form of a man. Thank you that you earned our salvation by never relying on your divinity. Jesus, thank you that you suffered for us. Thank you that you died for us. Thank you that you rose for us. Thank you that you now intercede for us. We love you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.